Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah and Bean, and welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Today, we've got a very special episode that we're doing in partnership with our friends at High 90s. Isn't that right, Bean? Oh, uh, what gave it away? <laughs> Maybe it's the piles of High 90s weed that we have sitting around us right now. As somebody who was very high throughout the entirety of the 90s, as I'm sure you were. <laughs> I actually did not start getting high until the very late 90s, uh, but with whatever 90s I had left, I made up for the previous several <laughs> years of the 90s. We first discovered this brand when Bean and I were at the Hall of Flowers event in Palm Springs. There you get to smoke all kinds of really fantastic weed. It's a good time. But this was a standout brand. We smoked some of their Gelato 33. And I was like, this is excellent, excellent Gelato. And we got to talking to them and found out that they are into bringing back and preserving classic strains from the 90s. So, of course, they do a 90s OG. I think this is really interesting because OG is quintessential Southern California weed, right? Like, this is gas. This is what people smoke out here. This is what people prefer. Back east, you know, it's sour diesel, maybe. But out here, it's OG Kush. Yeah, and that, of course, brings us to our great moment in weed history for this episode. We are going to actually tell the largely untold until very recently history of this classic strain from its origins not in Southern California mm. Mm, to its rise to fame, not just in the weed community, but as we'll learn through the hip hop community, you know, this is one of the earliest strains to be rapped about. I feel like I've heard different versions of this history and I'm not quite sure what exactly is the realest version of it. So much of this history was kept secret by the people who made it for literally decades in this case, but now with legalization, with the change in society, we're seeing people start to come forward, tell these stories, and now we can share them. I've uh, been a little distracted because I, I picked up this beautiful nug of the high 90s OG. Of course, if you are a Patreon subscriber and you're watching the video version of the podcast, you can see this beautiful nug that I am holding up to the camera. If you're not mm -hmm. a Patreon supporter, what the fuck, man? <laughs> we gotta <laughs> eat, we gotta smoke. <laughs> You could go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com right now. You could put five on it. You could put a little more on it and get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, or, you know, throw in $4.20 if you got it. If you really enjoy the show and love us and want to support us, please help us get the word out. Tell your friends about Great Moments in Weed History. If you know somebody who's really into OG Kush, Right now, just text them a link to this episode and be like, I know you're into OG Kush. Check this out. You should learn more about it because that's what we are about here. We're about preserving cannabis history and promoting cannabis education. I got to say, I have just cracked open a jar of high 90s OG 
And just that first whiff of that gas, I mean, it brings me back to when I first moved to Southern California and this smell was just everywhere. And uh, yeah, again, if you want to see us handling these nugs right here, just go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. You'll get all kinds of other fun bonus exclusives. Yes, and that is greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, not nughandler.com. We don't fuck with those people. <laughs> they are stealing our content. And of course, you know, we do need your help because we are shadow banned on every platform. Even just, I can't even call you on the phone sometimes. They cut it off. Our posts are throttled. We are pushed down in the search results. So every little bit of help getting the word out is truly appreciated by us. Yeah, so one thing we'd love for you to do is, you know, as much as we just shout on all these companies, please go online, please go on social media and make some posts. Tell us about your own personal greatest moments in your own weed history. Use the hashtag great moments in weed history or send us a DM. Tell us the story. We might mention it in the podcast. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we got a really exciting story going today. I have some high 90s OG rolled up right here with my glass tip. Ooh, well, I got this beautiful pipe from our friends at Long Island Glass. I've been saving Ooh. it for a special occasion. I've been saving it for some weed that is worthy of breaking it in. And this 90s OG definitely fits the bill. I'm right about to just... Oh! Yeah. But wait! I'm being told you, the listener, you might not be ready to go. That's fine. That's all good. All you have to do is hit pause, take that time, roll up a joint, split a blunt, pack a bong, dab a dab, press some rosin, rub some topicals all over yourself, or do all of the above. The one thing I promise you is that when you are ready... We'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. This episode of Great Moments in Weed History is proudly sponsored by High 90s. Their 90s OG is a cross of San Fernando Valley Hindu Kush times Chemdog that's got all the incredible flavor, potency, and that soaring high that made OG Kush one of the all-time game-changing cannabis strains. High 90s has preserved that original OG cut through tissue culture to bring you their very own 90s OG. While every brand has been focusing on exotics, High 90s has also brought back this legendary OG cut to capture that incredible vibe and bring it to your favorite California dispensaries. High 90s is also launching two new OG strains this month, a White Fire OG, that's a collaboration with OG Rascal, and Mamba OG, they're going to be in stores throughout Southern California, and don't sleep on their other strains. They've got a Peach Mints that's a cross of Kush Mints and White Fire OG, they've got a Double Cupcake that's a cross of True OG Kush and Birthday Cake, they've got a Watermelon Sherbet that's a cross of Runts and Sunset Sherbet with notes of like candy and gas. And then of course, as I mentioned earlier, their gelato 
33 across of Sunset Sherbet and Thin Mint Cookies, which is just one of the best gelatos you are going to find out there. That was the first bag of high 90s weed that I am not holding up because it is gone. (laughs) (laughs) Check out Weed Maps to find stores that carry high 90s products, which also include these wild, mind-erasing, wax-infused pre-rolls, and they're just launched vape pens. And you can follow them on Instagram. Just go to at high 90s. High is using letters. 90s is using numbers. S is just an S. Go check out high 90s. All right. I am inhaling and exhaling some very, very gassy high 90s OG smoke over here. And I feel like I'm ready to get into this history. Bean, let's go, man. Let's get into our hotbox time machine. We're going to be largely talking about that magical time called the 90s, but I wanted to go a little further back, or actually way further back, because when we talk about OG Kush, that word Kush has a very, very specific meaning, and it's not just a weed, it is a place in the world. Yeah, that's right. So the Kush Mountains are, of course, in Pakistan, India, right? They're they're sort of on the border there, covering territories in both countries. Of course, this was one country before 1947. And this climate, this altitude is historically fantastic for growing cannabis. There's all kinds of thousands of year old cannabis growing communities that exist in this region. And that's where the word Kush comes from. Yeah, and if you want to talk about OGs, these are the OGs of weed growing. Yes, older than all other Gs. <laughs> <laughs> and just to read from a bit of Robert Colonel Clark, definitely one of our uh, weed historians who, who charted the course for modern weed history. He says, you know, during the 1960s and 70s, many adventurous wanderers passed through Afghanistan as they followed what was known as the Hippie Trail from Europe to India. By the time Westerners reached the region, land race hashish varieties had been grown and processed with traditional techniques for generations, and both the farmers and their crops were well adapted to the landscape. While we are huge champions of cannabis culture in the United States, in Western countries, it has to be noted that there was a lot of cultural tourism and appropriation that took place at this time. A lot of our favorite strains were taken directly from the source in South and Central Asia. While everybody here fights over who was the first to have this strain, that cut, that whatever. They're just fighting over stolen land because it all came from essentially one place or a handful of places, right? And I think that's an important thing to remember. These strains that were native to Afghanistan and Pakistan and that region and that were then bred not for smoking flour, but for producing hashish, over many generations, this is where we get what we think of as indicas, these shorter, bushier plants that mature faster and also yield more. And that becomes very important because in the United States, purebred sativa strains would take way too long to finish and really couldn't be grown. So once these seeds from these, quote, adventurous wanderers, as, as, the, as the story goes, 
come back to the United States, that's the beginning of the entire homegrown movement in the United States and Canada. As we've talked about so many times on the show, cannabis is an incredibly adaptable plant. If you take it up to a very cold climate over a couple of generations, it'll turn into a very fibrous form of itself that we call hemp, right? You take it into a hot and tropical environment, within a couple of generations, you'll start to see it get spindly and stinky and sweet smelling. The version of this plant that's adapted to the Kush Mountains, they're shorter, they're stockier, and they produce more resin. So it's that resin content. When you're cultivating cannabis for hash yield, right, you want to get as much of that sticky stuff out of it as possible. So you're going to gravitate towards plants that generate more resin. Yes. And then there's the hybrid era where sativas and indicas are crossed to find that best of both worlds hybrid strains that's really the story of modern cannabis breeding now are you ready for the record scratch moment in this episode let's do it og kush might not be descended from kush plants what and so you know of course this might be a shock to anybody who like believes in the sanctity of uh, cannabis history as it exists uh, as an oral tradition, right? But of course, the issue with the oral tradition is that a lot of people make up their own versions of the story. And so, of course, the thing we thought came from there and ended up here and became this thing, of course, that's not exactly it. There are all kinds of twists and turns in the genetic history of cannabis in America. Just as we look to these much, much older cultivation traditions in places like Afghanistan and the places that the plant has been around a lot longer, and it's very hard to tell that history because it's so distant in time, it's very hard to tell the history of these early modern cannabis hybrids because a lot of people wanted the credit, everybody wanted the money, but nobody wanted the heat. You know, we talk about heat strains, but we used to talk about the heat as the That's the sound of the police! Up until legalization, nobody wanted to be identified outside of this very small sphere because that would mean you have the police on your ass. If you're going around saying like, this is my cut, this is my cut, I'm the one who brought this over here, right? Uh, and the wrong people find out you're in a lot of fucking trouble. But of course, it leaves me very curious as to what this strain, this ubiquitous, delicious, gassy strain actually is. Well, I got some good news and I got some less good news. The good news <laughs> is no one in this story is going to encounter the police. This is going to be a police-free episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Amazing. A rarity and a welcome <laughs> one. Indeed. In terms of what exactly OG Kush lineage is... I, I, I can't be too definitive, but very recently, the story of how this strain spread and became a game changer has come out. It's pretty well documented. It's got some first and last names behind it. So uh, I'm pretty confident in this story, which begins in the 1990s. Where do you think? Not California. What state? I've heard stories that... OG Kush came from Florida, and it was what they call crippy down there in Florida, right? I'm going to guess Florida? 
Ding, 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 ding. Hey. That, is, that is correct. This is also really the story of the beginning of indoor weed as a dominant force in cannabis cultivation and something that not only affects the way that weed is grown, the where and the how, but also the what. You know, you get can get a lot more potency when growing indoors. And this is the beginning of people breeding strains specifically to be grown indoors. If you think about the, you know, what an outdoor plant looks like can be up to 10 feet tall up in Humboldt County. Mm -hmm. What it looks like indoors, those are very, very different plants. This is another big change in cannabis cultivation. And of course, it is spurred by prohibition, the best place to grow cannabis as the war on weed heats up is someplace nobody can see it. Yeah, and so it's in these controlled environments, right, that we start to see some really crazy high-quality weed. I went to high school in New Jersey, as did Bean, and, you know, you had access to garbage weed just as, as much as you wanted. You, you could go to certain neighborhoods and buy nick bags, uh, you know, until the sun comes up. But if you wanted really good weed, right, the phrase would be like kind bud or very often hydro, right? And so hydro refers to a hydroponic grow that's always going to be indoor, right? Now, they're not necessarily referring to cannabis grown using specifically hydroponic methods. Very often when they would say hydro, they just meant indoor weed, right? Because the quality was so distinctly, markedly better than weed that was grown outdoor or at the time, cannabis that was grown outdoor in another state and then shipped over, right? So meaning like you're not going to get that same flavor, that same quality, that same potency. But from the indoor grows that are, you know, geographically a little bit closer to you, you're going to have access to incredibly high quality cannabis. Yeah. And, you know, just, to, just to, a shout out for our outdoor weed out there. Another reason that this both real and perceived gap in potency between indoors and outdoors uh, to cold is because the outdoor weed of the early 90s was all prohibition weed. It was being grown sometimes in the shade to be hidden away. Often these were gorilla gardens, not the animal gorilla, but the idea of like the a gorilla. Yes, <laughs> the tactic. And so you're, of course, not going to get the highest quality outdoor cannabis when you are growing secretively, when you are scared to visit your plants regularly, when you can't give them all the care that they need and deserve. And so, you know, outdoor weed has come a long way, baby. Uh, but this is really a story about the origins of indoor grows dominance and it begins as you aptly guessed in florida in the early 90s with a grower named matt bubba burger who uh was sort of locally famous already for hit you know weed famous uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> for a strain he called bubba but then he essentially got a hold of some bag seed originally this was a strain called kryptonite from the Pacific Northwest and Seattle that was getting shipped to Florida, he in like bricks, and that gave it the uh, local nickname Kryptonite became Crippy when Matt started growing it and proliferating it. And I can say personally that phrase reached 
you know, New Jersey in the 90s, for sure. It was something you heard about. Crippy somehow, and we talk about this a lot on the show, wordplay is second nature to, to cannabis people everywhere and at all times. So, of course, Crippy starts to be known as Cushberries, and then that gets shortened to Cush by people who say they had no real conscious understanding that there was this Cush region or this tradition of Cush weed already. Wow, that's crazy. So... According to our sources, this is a total coincidence, uh, you know, in, in the lexicon there. I, I think that's so fascinating because, you know, referring to cannabis in general as Kush, right, is a very common thing. Whether or not that happened consciously or completely unconsciously, whether or not it's like a total coincidence, I just think it's fascinating that it doesn't matter. The verbal language doesn't really factor in right it's more about the vibe this cannabis its flavor its specific combination of cannabinoids and its effect on the you know local people is what created its mythology yeah and it's certainly likely that that lineage is in there somewhere it would be more surprising if it isn't but at this point just known as kush not yet og kush making a name for itself all over Florida, moving up the East Coast. But, you know, sometimes if you want to make it big, you got to make that big move. So Matt makes the move to Southern California, to Los Angeles, where stars are born. He meets a grower named Josh D. Ah, yes, Josh D. Okay, so this is Again, I feel like we're in like the Lord of the Rings backstory of like a major <laughs> character. You know what I'm saying? Welcome to Rivendell, Frodo Baggins. Because, of course, these are names, you know, it, it, Bubba, for example. Uh, probably best known for Bubba Kush. If you've ever heard the phrase pre-98 Bubba Kush, uh, you know, it's like, it's just a little taste of the level of technicality with which people treat cannabis genetics, right? So these guys are really like comic book heroes. These are like titans of American cannabis strain history. Yeah, absolutely. So Josh D, uh, during the day, he's working as a production assistant, sort of in the lower rungs of the Hollywood system. He's making minimum wage. And then he is moonlighting as a weed dealer and growing his network of people just to sell weed to. I want to shout out a, a Leafly podcast interview with Josh D, on which he really told some of this story for the first time. And he said, you know, at this time, I had always wanted to grow my own. And then he meets a grower who had like four 1,000 watt lights, which at the time was like at the cutting edge of indoor cultivation. And now is, you know, would fit in a small bedroom, basically. Yeah, yeah. This is basically like the supply closet of any major grow that you'd find in, in California. Of course, you know, before grows were illegal, every dollar that you invested into your setup was potentially at risk. If you got busted, all that shit was going to get seized. Now we see these like 
500 light grows. I mean, this is, we're starting with, what was it, four? This is just what he sees for the first time, an indoor cultivation setup, you know? This is back in the Prohibition era. So even if you met a grower, you probably didn't know they were a grower unless you were pretty cool with them. And even then, they were not about to invite you in to take a look at their forbidden closet of mystery. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And using a light to grow indoor, right? You are controlling the environment that you're growing in. Like no matter where you are, you're going to be able to influence the upbringing of that plant and ultimately the finished product. And here's where Josh D really wins our hearts here on Great Moments in Weed History because he said, you know, it wasn't just about loving weed and growing weed. I was devoted to rebelling against the system and not working for the man. I had always had a fucking regular job, but the system is so fucked. I just wanted to prove to myself and other people that you could make a living doing something as cool as growing weed. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is such a beautiful sentiment. This is definitely an attitude that predates Prop 64 here in California, that predates legalization, right? When growing weed was sticking it to the man, when prospering, truly uh, the best revenge against the man was living well off of cannabis, right? Cultivating it, spreading the love, making the loot you need to make off of your weed. And, you know, honestly, just being part of a community, not worrying so much about the money because you're smoking constantly. Your mind is constantly sort of expanded, right? You're like living in this place of bliss because you're serving the plant and the plant is serving you. Yeah, so now our Lord of the Rings team is about to come together because Matt moves to... Los Angeles, where stars are born. He meets Josh D. They're sort of in the early stages of figuring out indoor cultivation. They said there was one operating hydro store in all of Los Angeles at this time. And Matt, a.k.a. Bubba, starts talking about, uh, you know, people get homesick. And he starts talking about the strains that he left behind Josh D very uh, reasonably is like tut tut there, Bubba. You know you're you're in California now. We don't <laughs> we don't have to worry about your Florida strains. This goes back and forth until ultimately, basically on a dare, Matt is like, "All right, I'll be right back." Hops on a plane, flies back to Florida, gets some cuts of Kush and his Bubba, puts them in a Ziploc bag, sprays them with some water, right back on the plane. Gets them to Los Angeles. A couple of them survive that harrowing journey for a little weed cutting. And now they've got the Kush in Los Angeles. This is truly historic. This is our great moment, if not one of several great moments in this episode, because this is when that crossover happens, right? Not necessarily from the place that we thought it came from, from Pakistan on the other side of the world. But from Florida to California, creating the birth of a cannabis legacy. I mean, this strain that just came over in his carry-on luggage in a little Ziploc bag is about to become synonymous with cannabis itself. The most popular strain in the weed smokingest place in America. Yeah, this is basically like starring in your high school musical, graduating high school, and getting on the next bus to Hollywood with your little dream held tight. 
weed version. For anybody who doesn't know what a cutting or a clone is, this is essentially you take a cut off a leaf from the plant, root that leaf, and it will grow a genetically identical plant. Um, and this is another thing that is really spurred by uh, indoor growing and the era. So this is actually the first time that Josh D is growing from a clone instead of a seed. They figure all that out. He puts one Kush plant in with his little 1000 watt light indoor grow. And there's only one problem. He said Kush was the ugly duckling of the group. It was lanky and tall with huge gaps <laughs> between the buds. He was like, fuck this shit. These OG buds are kind of short and stocky. And, you know, yeah, there's gaps between the buds. They often look like little triangles, right? You're not going to very often get a big old fat, like, you know, show bud out of it. You're going to get like, you know, really aromatic and really tasty, but a bunch of small buds, essentially. So it doesn't have jar appeal or shelf appeal. Yeah. And of course, for the grower, you know, the lights cost the same no matter how much you yield. You're going to go to prison for the same amount of time <laughs> no, no matter how much you yield. So you want to yield the most. But at about five weeks, here comes the turn because Josh D says, that's when I see that this plant is developing the greasiest trichomes I've ever witnessed in my life oh that's greasy that's really fucking greasy yeah that's greasy greasy and then it just became mm. the loudest stickiest variety with this very low leaf to calyx ratio so you're not getting a ton of buds but you're not getting a ton of leaf as well it's it's just sort of all bud and it's got this overpowering smell of piney lemon and rotten skunk and the buds start Ooh. developing into these little diamonds, he called them. This is still Kush, keeping in mind. It has not been named OG Kush yet. This is Ooh. the first ever literal single Kush plant to grow in California. And it only yielded 18 grams compared to like 60 grams for the other strains that uh, Josh D was growing in the same garden. Oh my God. Okay. So for your reference, that's about two thirds of an ounce. That is not <laughs> very much weed. That's not going to make you a ton of money. Not the most attractive cash plant, of course, but quality speaks over quantity in this case, I suppose. Yes. And this is also the beginning of a journey of working with the plant, selectively breeding within OG Kush and learning what OG Kush needs to thrive and to yield more. And the reason that he stuck with it in Josh D's own words was, when I would smoke it with other people, I could tell right away that this was something they had never experienced before. So we just took it from there. Real quickly, I found the right people who would appreciate this flower and they started bidding on it. At the time, the best of the best coming from Northern California was something like $5,500 a pound. I'm sorry, everyone who's growing weed right now. I know oh that that's like God. three to yeah. four times what you're getting right now. It, that it, is it, insane. <laughs> it's insane. And I remember these times. I remember when weed was this expensive and it's still, you know, compared to today, it's just like, wow. 
And then here comes Kush, because Josh D says, we changed that game, literally changed the entire weed economy for Southern California by growing it locally indoors and pushing the price up to $8,000 a pound, 500 a zip straight up. Holy crap. So this is really popular shit. It's actually changing the cannabis economy of California itself. Yeah, but it does just start with this one little grow room with one little click of growers. And, of course, Josh already had a clientele because he had been a a dealer and he's now vertically integrating, (laughs) as we would say in the modern weed economy. The other thing he does Mm -hmm. is he sells it all in jars. It's trimmed perfectly. These are pre-dispensary days. There's, you know... 1996 really is the year Prop 215 passed. The beginning of medical cannabis retail is really a year or two away, and that's just a couple of of locations. So he is, in essence, providing this incredibly high-quality product in a completely still illicit underground market. Wow. Okay, so this is show bud. This is a time when... The look, the packaging, the manicuring of a bud was not nearly as important as just something that sells itself in a lot of ways, right? Like people weren't really as concerned because this was still an illegal drug that you're trying to get your hands on. You didn't care how cleaned up it was, right? But the first time you sort of, you know, see a really well-trimmed, well-cured, well-manicured bud... You realize what a thing of beauty it is. I mean, now we take it for granted because all the buds that we get in dispensary are going to be like kind of perfectly manicured, right? But this was a time when that very concept was just being introduced. You know, it's like the equivalent of getting moonshine in a mason jar or getting it in like a nice bottle that's in like a velvet lined box. You know what I mean? Like, it's all about that look. It's all about that packaging. And of course, people love to flex. I mean, this is really what contributes so much the proliferation of high-quality cannabis, high-quality strains, it becomes a popularity contest. It becomes like the the rare Jordans or whatever. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, I have this bud. It's like a status symbol. Wait, are you saying that people in Los Angeles are image conscious? (laughs) (laughs) Only the weed smokers. Only the weed (laughs) smokers. Of course. And so this all has this single-origin bud. As one does, Josh and Matt, a.k.a. Bubba, they let a couple friends grow and have a cutting, and those friends let a couple friends have a cutting. You know, it's as simple as cutting that leaf off a living plant and rooting it in a new grow room, and all of a sudden, by 1998, he says people were calling anything and everything Kush. It became a general term like dank or kind. Yeah. So, and this is a very California thing too. Like, you know, for example, in New York, sour diesel was treated the same way. If somebody really wanted to sell something, it would be like, got that sour, got that sour, got that sour diesel, right? And of course, the history of sour diesel is a mythology unto itself that I'm sure we'll cover one day on this show. But, you know, when a strain really reaches ubiquity in that way, it starts to get knocked off. Imitation is the highest form of flattery, of course. And, you know, it just becomes a buzzword. The same way that kryptonite became crippy became the word for any very high quality cannabis that you could get in Florida, right? So this is like, I mean, transcending. This is when you reach a new level 
it's no longer about ownership or who started it. That's lost to the ages. Now, now it's all just going to be mythology because this thing has gone to such a level of ubiquity. Well, there is that section in the in the Weed Bible where it says, and kryptonite begat crippies, mm-hmm. crippies begat Cush. <laughs> and then I think Solomon is next. I, I, you know, I'm... I'm <laughs> I'm not the I'm not a biblical scholar, just you know, weed Bible. Uh, and so yeah, Josh D says suddenly we're seeing this product everywhere and saying that's not the Kush. So how do we differentiate? Our team, our circle came up with the term OG Kush to say that this is the original strain that created the entire phenomenon. Right, and so this is interesting because a lot of people would say OG is original right or it uh denotes the original but then i've heard a lot of people also say og stands for ocean grown do you know what the distinction there is yeah or even original gangster you know and especially we're going to talk more about how hip-hop music plays a huge role in this story uh Mm -hmm. i would say until josh d felt comfortable enough to come forward and tell this story himself it left a vacuum of mythology, which is, you know, fun and interesting in and of itself. But without contradictory evidence, I'm pretty confident to take his account of this at his word. For instance, saying that OG stands for ocean grown, I very strongly suspect is a story created by somebody who lived close to the ocean. Yes, of course. In a land where it's illegal to take credit for something, right? Of course, these things are going to take all kinds of twists and turns and pop up. So just like Kush does not actually come from the Kush Mountains, OG, as many people believe it does, does not necessarily stand for ocean grown, unless you're that guy who's been growing it near the ocean. <laughs> yes. And then this just spreads and spreads. It, it starts to get into commercial-sized grows as we get into the dispensary era. There's dozens and dozens of actual OG crosses or OG phenos. And then there's just fake OGs that have nothing to do with the original. And then it really starts to spread on a website called overgrow.com where people were trading seeds and clones. We definitely want to do an episode on that sometime in the future. And Josh D, you know, becomes disconnected from his creation. He can't take credit at this time. And as he put it, The internet was something that myself and my crew did not go on. It was forbidden. Yeah, of course, because, you know, if there's this new, like, you know, multimedia information sharing platform, right? That's like the last place you want to put evidence of your illegal business. Now, of course, you know, we live in a world where there's an entire chunk of the internet that's specifically dedicated to the the buying and selling and transferring of illegal goods. It's called the dark web, right? But at this time, it was unclear. You know, like, there was this thing that had the involvement of the U.S. government in its development. It sort of seemed like a giant trap, you know what I mean? It seemed like a place where you could just have your spot blown up. Yeah, and to get to your point and and to Josh D's point, Overgrow.com itself was eventually taken down by the uh, federal government of Canada. So smart move, Josh. And Josh is now in the legal industry. So shout out to him as well. Still out there doing his thing. 
Another uh, sort of legend of the old cannabis scene and the new cannabis scene also plays an important role in this story. This is our friend of the podcast, Brett Feldman. Yeah, Brett, Wonder Brett. Yeah, Wonder Brett. Yeah, the homie. Excellent, excellent cannabis cultivator. One of the best. So he said he first got a cut of OG Kush in 1997, so very early in the game, and quote, That was when cannabis cultivation started to get serious for me. When Kush was given to me, I had to figure out how to grow weed immediately and not kill these plants. So he gets a cutting and he's not even a grower and he's got to figure out what to do. I had this huge responsibility to protect and share that Kush strain because it was so special. I wasn't much of a religious person, but it definitely felt like God was showing me the way. And I was like, I hear you. I see what you want me to do. And he becomes the first one to share a cut with Be Real of Cypress Hill. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, this is a very popular cannabis figure, of course. You know, like the first time that I heard anything about cannabis was by listening to Black Sunday. And mind you, this was in Thailand. This was not in the United States. This was like on the other side of the world, right? Uh, And of course, in a funny twist of fate, many years later, after I quit from Bong Appetit, they hired Be Real to replace me, which I still blows my mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? In a lot of ways, because like I was literally like eight years old listening to his music, and then like decades later, uh, he takes my old job. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, which is just—it's just a fucking head trip to me. I think that's really, really cool. But yeah, of course, you know this is about to launch it into ubiquity, and you know to speak a little bit more about Wonder Brett, who is a friend of the podcast, who is a personal homie to both of us. And he's just a lover of the plant. I mean, look, somebody who says that, oh, I felt like, you know, like the light was guiding me, right? In some ways, the plant is speaking through him. He is an artist of that order. Like the plant speaks through him. You try some of his concentrate, you try some of his flowers, and you are going to totally understand, right? This man speaks the language of terpenes and cannabinoids. Truly a fucking expert. And yeah, okay, so now we're reaching this new level of ubiquity, this new level of dissemination, because one of the most major cannabis figures in Southern California has been turned on to OG Kush. And this is Cypress Hill in 1997, having won three Grammys in a row, spreading this cannabis message as far as Thailand and all over the world. And really, we associate hip-hop and weed very, very closely for good reasons. Uh, But this is a real turning point in that and making it outward-facing to popular culture and reaching all kinds of people. This is also the beginning, for Be Real, of a serious path in the legal cannabis world. He's now got his own dispensaries and his own line of strains, and it all really started with getting this cut. Obviously, not his love of weed, but his real serious involvement in the industry. And Wonder Brett also says he gave the strain to uh, exhibit after meeting him randomly at a Tower Records. Wow, incredible. And special shout out, friend of the podcast, X to the Z exhibit, not only one of my hosting idols, right? Because of course, the man hosted many seasons of the legendary MTV show, Pimp My Ride, but also just a fantastic rapper. I mean, look, everybody knows him from his verses on Chronic 2001, 
But if you go way back to Exhibit's work with the Alcoholics, another classic California hip-hop group, and his solo album At the Speed of Life, I mean, this guy is truly one of the most talented individuals ever. And I'm so stoked that I've gotten to get high with this guy. I mean, he's he's truly a chiller. When he was on Bon Appetit, he literally just rolled up by himself in a Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> fucking driveway. No entourage, nothing. He was just showed up. He was like, hey, what's up? Like, let's smoke. You know what I mean? And he gets high. That motherfucker sat there and smoked toe-to-toe with everybody else there on set. He was getting high as shit. Yeah, and so here's how Brett described it. He said... It all started with me taking a risk and introducing myself to Exhibit at Tower Records. I was basically like, hey man, call me. I'd love to hook you up with some really good weed. I have this fire kush. He ended up calling me and inviting me down to a video shoot. I brought them some kush that I had just finished harvesting. They were all loving it. That was my introduction to that crowd, including Dr. Dre, Snoop, and being this legendary weed guy to them. Wow. Okay, so, you know, these are some of the biggest names in cannabis. Obviously, the guys who did The Chronic, uh, you know, did Chronic 2001. Snoop Dogg, who is literally like weed smoking embodied into human form, recently spotted, taking hits off a blunt at the Super Bowl. Pretty fucking legendary shit. Now, okay, we're entering a more familiar space now, right? Because we're talking about how this strain found its way to the people who showered it with such referentialism that it became ubiquitous outside of California. Now, this is global reach, even in a place where you don't have access to actual OG Kush, right? You know the phrase, you know the word, and suddenly people in other parts of the world are going to start calling any good weed like OG or this is that Kush or whatever, and we're going to see that effect play out once again. Yeah, and here we are decades later in a world where it seems like there's a new hype strain every three months, and yet OG Kush remains a hype strain. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really persistent strain. It is literally its own category of strain in California, especially in Southern California. There's all different types of OGs now, but really... When you're smelling, inspecting an OG nug, right, you're looking for that gassy smell, right? And now the phrase gas has just come to mean, in less enlightened circles, anything good. But OG Kush is that stuff that you can just smoke all day. I think that's the thing. You know, when I first came to California, and I was very blessed. You know, people were gifting me lots and lots of OG Kush. We would just smoke it all day. That's the whole thing. You can smoke this shit all fucking day. It goes with everything. That's why people love it so much. It just fits the vibe. And according to uh, Wonder Brett himself, this was the house strain for the recording sessions that became the album The Chronic. And I can quite guarantee you, I'll put my reputation and yours if you don't mind, they were smoking all day. Yes, they were smoking all day. Uh, they sort of made that phrase popular, uh, you know, as everybody knows. And I mean, think about this. You know, cannabis is a creative fuel, right? And it's had such a massive influence on music that is loved worldwide, right? And, and I think that's really crazy. That's maybe like the biggest part of its influence because music is everywhere, right? Like everybody listens to music everywhere. Everybody knows Dr. Dre. Everybody knows Snoop Dogg's music. They're classic albums, right? So in a lot of ways, wherever you can access that, you can access the vibe. You can access the culture in a lot of ways, right? 
And that gravitates people more towards the state of mind, this way of thinking, and hopefully towards some high quality cannabis in their everyday lives. Yeah. And while, you know, we love to love to love to talk about weed history, as I feel longtime listeners have probably uh, surmised for themselves, uh, <laughs> I think we can wrap this one up by, by smoking some weed history. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I am absolutely ready. So I've got my Bob Snodgrass sidecar here. It is packed to the gills with some high 90s OG that's been hand torn, by the way, like old school. <laughs> Let's spark this up. Bean, thank you so much for this incredible history on this really ubiquitous strain, one that I love so much that really influences my own creativity and, you know, has kind of changed the way that I smoke cannabis. It was really, really fantastic to learn that. Uh, my pleasure to share this with you and with everybody. And uh, my pleasure to enjoy this high 90s, 90s OG and all the strains that they sent us. And of course, we thank them for helping us bring you another great moment in weed history. Yes. Thank you, high 90s. And thank you at home for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time on Great Moments in Weed History. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.